Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. Good to see all of you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, If you want to follow along, there's a Bible beneath the chair in front of you or near you. Uh, and you can read from that. If you've been with us, you know this is uh, the second Sunday of Lent. And during Lent, we're talking about what did Jesus experience on his way to the cross. And so if you were with us on Ash Wednesday, we talked about his prayer, not what I want, but what you want. Not what I will, Father, but what you will. And then last week, uh, Hannah Tom, our spiritual formation pastor, preached about the arrest of Jesus and Judas' involvement in that. And today, we'll look at what is commonly called his trial. But before we get there, uh, let's pause and pray together. Uh, God, we come together to center ourselves together around you. Recognizing that you are here in our midst, which means nothing else matters. And if you are not here with us, nothing else matters. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would invite us, support us, challenge us, disturb us, so that we, in turn, might become more like your son, Jesus. We pray these things together in his name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 26. It says, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, followed Jesus at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remains silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. 
But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? Now, I don't know if you caught the subtlety here, but I don't think Matthew's a huge fan of what went on that night. I mean, it's a pretty one-sided scene that he creates. It's a pretty... uh, It's a scene in which he points toward all the corruption. And to be sure, there was some corruption in the group of people Matthew speaks of. Matthew talks about all of the elders, all of the scribes, all of the Sanhedrin. And it makes sense that most people would have been in town in Jerusalem regardless of where they were from on this time because this is right around one of the highest and holiest days on the Jewish calendar, the festival of Passover, which was a pilgrimage festival. So likely, there was a lot of people who had shown up who hadn't been, normally wouldn't have been around. And so Matthew begins right away by talking about how many people are packed into this palace and that they have a motivation to make sure Jesus is killed. And he points to the fact that this could be seen as a legal proceeding because the Sanhedrin is there. Now, every town in in Israel had a Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was just a court. Usually, the local Sanhedrins were made up of somewhere around 23 people, but the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was kind of like our Supreme Court. It was the top of the courts, and it was made up of 70 people plus one, that being the high priest, in this case, Caiaphas. And they patterned themselves after the elders that we learn about in Torah, where Moses, who led the people of Israel up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery was told, bring 70 elders to rule and reign and judge alongside of you. So this is the tradition that it carried, and this was the most powerful group of people in Israel. They were the ones who were the judges. They were the ones who were the supreme court. And Matthew says, they're all there, the elders are all there, and the scribes are all there. And typically, when we are set up that way, we begin reading through this and we think, man, this this whole thing is a sham. From the very start, Jesus never had a chance. And we assume from top to bottom, it's nothing but corruption. But one of the things that I find interesting is that Matthew actually says this about everybody who's there. Kind of painting with broad brushstrokes. Now, I know how it is in our world today. It's really easy to paint with broad brushstrokes and kind of cast dispersions on groups of people and have everyone nod in agreement as though we know the heart of every individual who is there. And maybe this is what's happening. After all, Matthew has given his life as a disciple to following after Jesus, and he's brought into this room, and it's there that Jesus is found guilty 
and later handed over to the Romans. But I point this out, and I make this observation at the very front end of this, and here's why. It's because this passage has been used historically in the church over 2,000 years as a way of finding the Jews complicit in the death of Jesus. And anti-Semitism has a long, insidious history, particularly rooted in the Christian community. And it's still happening. Unless you think it's only happening on the bitter, far, extreme right, it's actually not. Several of my Jewish friends talk about how there's like almost this cloaked anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic attitudes that exist also on the left. And that oftentimes it comes from within the Christian community. Just a few weeks ago, I was flying somewhere and I was sitting in the gate waiting for my flight and typically I have headphones on because I've said this before I don't like talking to people when I travel like when I travel with my wife I love my wife I don't talk to her on a plane I don't know what it is if it's like too much intimacy because you're right next to each I don't know I just I don't like talking to people so I always have my headphones on even if I'm not listening to music it's just a way of saying don't talk to me I've actually been on a plane with my headphones on with nothing playing and people will say, someone will say something to me and I ignore them like I can't hear them. That's how big of a value this is for me. <laughs> I have no idea what drives it. But on this particular day, I'm sitting in the gate and I don't have my headphones in and I'm working on my computer and this man sits next to me and across from him sits a woman that I assume is his wife. And they're talking a little bit and then she pulls out her phone and she says, oh, so-and-so saw... Uh, Emily, and she said her last name, and I looked at them. You ever had the moments when you're eavesdropping and you really want to say something, but then you feel like a creeper? Yeah, that's where I was at. So they start talking about this woman, Emily, and finally I was said, uh, excuse me. The guy's like, yeah? I was like, uh, I, was, I was eavesdropping. Uh, I think I know who you're talking about. And they both said, yeah, really? I said, yeah, isn't she a rabbi at Temple Emmanuel in Hilltop neighborhood just over? He said, yeah. I said, yeah, our congregation meets in the original building that Temple Emmanuel built, and I'm friends with the clergy of that congregation. So they texted Emily and said, hey, we're sitting next to Michael Hidalgo, and kind of back and forth. So then the woman said this to me, and I, I will never forget this. She said, well, it's good to meet a friendly face. Usually when we're alone, we refer to her as Rabbi Emily. But because of what's going on in our world today, we try not to tip the hand too much so that people don't know that we're Jewish because we don't know how they'll respond. So when you come to a passage like this, that maybe you grew up in this time of year before Easter, you heard it preached on, what's often missed and what's often been failed to, to be clear is that Matthew is Jewish and he's writing to a Jewish audience. And there is the reality that we tend to be tougher on our own families than we will about the other. And that maybe this is what Matthew is doing. But it's not intended to demonize an entire group of people any more than you can demonize an entire nation of people and presume the kind of people they are because maybe, I don't know, they go at war against somebody else. So we need to be really careful. 
The other thing we need to be careful of is not just starting with demonizing them because then it just gives us like the excuse to do what we often do when we come to the gospels. You know, there's all these stories about Jesus and he's just, he's great. And then he's in conversations with all these other people who, well, they aren't great. And one of the temptations is oftentimes to put ourselves on the side of Jesus as though we would respond in these situations the same way he would and then just kind of wag our finger at people over here. But maybe this scene is given us so that we would find ourselves in the story because as I read through this, what I began to see is there's a question that's hanging out in the air that might just be for all of us. Now, as a way of helping us see this question, let's walk through what Matthew tells us about this story. It says they're looking for a way to put Jesus to death. Now, this is their motivation, but this does not necessarily dictate how this trial worked. As a matter of fact, some say this is really not a trial at all because there was more official proceedings. This might have been like a grand jury hearing where you're trying to figure out if there's any guilt whatsoever. And so what happens is it says that witnesses were coming, false witnesses, but their stories didn't hold up. Now, if they really wanted Jesus dead, they would have just found a way to break the rules or spread some rumors and it would have worked out. But what's interesting is right from the start, you see that they're actually kind of following protocol according to the laws that were written down. We see this really clearly when it says, finally two witnesses came against him and said, I heard him say he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it. As a matter of fact, the laws are so clearly kept that one scholar recognizes that the way the trial unfolds is the way the trial was supposed to unfold. This is what uh, Frederick Bruner says. He says, everything that has hitherto been attacked as an illegality in the trial of Jesus was completely in accordance with the legal and criminal code that was in existence. They're following the rules. They're doing it all correctly. No one's ever going to be able to say to them in an appeal, you didn't follow protocol. Which, by the way, is one of the interesting things about poor religion. Like, you can be someone who ticks all the boxes, but your heart might be miles and miles away from the heart of God. Two people come forward, and they finally have their story. Why two people? Well, according to the Deuteronomy chapter 7, you could not find someone guilty unless there were at least two witnesses who agreed on everything. Now, over time, what happened is the court said, well, let's develop questions to make sure that there is full agreement. And so the first question they would ask anyone who came with an accusation is, in what cycle of Sabbath years did this happen? Because the Jewish people lived on a cycle of every seven years. And so they would say, in what cycle did this happen? Then they would say, in what year of the cycle did this happen? On what month of the year did this happen? On what day of the week did this happen? At what hour of the day did this happen? And in what place did this occur? If you disagreed regarding the time of day, you and another witness, the case was thrown out. 
because they realized, especially in capital cases, life was on the line. And in the Jewish tradition, life is the most sacred of all things. If you got through those seven questions, then they would ask you, do you recognize the person who committed this transgression? And if they said yes, then they would begin to ask specific questions about the transgression you were a witness to. There's actually stories about two witnesses getting all the way through all of the questions when they were testifying against a couple who was caught in adultery and the case was thrown out because they could not agree on the color of the blankets of the bed they were sleeping on. So when it says two witnesses come and agree, they had actually been put through a lot of scrutiny and a lot of questions and eventually they come and they say, ha, we've got him. He said he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, which sounds like a really ridiculous thing to say as far as guilt goes that would, I don't know, lead to death. But it could be twisted. I mean, maybe this just means Jesus is seditious. Maybe he's speaking against God because it's a house that bears the name of God. Whatever it is, it seems serious enough for the high priest to say, what say you to Jesus? And Jesus says nothing. And he even doubles down. He said, aren't you going to defend yourself? And Jesus says nothing. One of the things I've learned is that anytime there's a group of people who are bent on accusations and discovering guilt, it does almost no good to open your mouth. Jesus is showing a lot of wisdom here, maybe a lot of restraint. And apparently Caiaphas gets so annoyed over it that he finally asks Jesus a point-blank question himself, saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Which is an interesting leap from, I'm going to destroy and rebuild the temple, for Caiaphas to say, are you the Messiah? I don't know if you've ever put those two questions together, but why would he ask Jesus that specific question? Well, probably because there was a link in Caiaphas's mind between the one who would rebuild the temple if it were ever destroyed and someone claiming to be Messiah, the Son of God. This link comes from the prophet Zechariah in chapter 6 where it talks about how the king, the coming king, the branch, capital B as they refer to him there, will be the one who will rebuild the temple. It's also connected to a story in 2 Samuel where King David, who was the king of Israel, whose palace was in Jerusalem, tells Nathan, the prophet, I want to build a temple for God. And God responds through Nathan to David and says, you are a violent person, you're a man of blood, you're not going to be the one to build my house, but your son will be the one who will build my house. Now, his son Solomon, in fact, is the one who built the first temple. That temple was later destroyed, and then the second temple was built. But that promise given to David, your son will be the one to build my house, there was also something else attached to it, and he will rule and reign forever, and his throne will never depart the house of Israel. And so people believed Messiah was going to build the temple if it were ever destroyed. So when Jesus is talking about the temple being destroyed and him being the one to rebuild it, all of a sudden Caiaphas thinks, wait a second, are you claiming to be Messiah? Messiah meaning the anointed one? 
Messiah meaning the one who was promised to the people of Israel as the king who will rule and reign and restore order and shalom throughout the world. And Jesus finally speaks up. Now in our text it says, well, you said so. But there's another way of translating it. And it's this. Am I? Are you the Messiah? I don't know, am I? It's a subversive way of kind of not denying it, but also kind of not just saying yes. By the way, I think Jesus, like if we really read the Gospels, I think he would really bother us because he never answers questions directly. Every time he's asked a question, he's like, there was a fish who was swimming downstream. And you're like, I literally asked you if you wanted a sandwich. He never answers questions directly. And so, are you Messiah? Am I? But then, he seems to get himself into a little bit of hot water because this is what he says. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus there is quoting from Daniel. Now, if you've ever read the book of Daniel, anyone here read the book of Daniel? Yeah, you're like, he was doing shrooms. <laughs> Turn to Daniel chapter 7, and all of a sudden you'll be like, oh, Michael's not kidding. Maybe he was. <laughs> Daniel chapter 7. This is what Jesus is referencing. Now, remember, the room is filled with priests and elders and scribes. These are people who knew the sacred text backward and forward. So when Jesus drops this line, they all know what he's referring to. It says this in Daniel 7 verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was the second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked before me and there was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns... There before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming from out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch. 
because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His domain is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Is that not bizarre? You thought I was kidding. It's trippy. Now, many believe that the four beasts he's talking about represent four empires, Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. And the reason the fourth beast had a lot of different horns is because Greece had a lot of different iterations of kings and kingdoms and empires. But ultimately what happens is those empires are all toppled. Now keep in mind, Caiaphas is ruling, not because of how it was supposed to work in the Jewish tradition. No, Caiaphas is ruling because he was given that post by a Roman governor named Valerius Gratus. Caiaphas and many of those who are there are in league with the empire of Rome. It benefits them politically and economically and in all sorts of other ways. And so when Jesus is asked about being Messiah, he says, am I? And he says, but I want to tell you something. From now on, you're going to see the son of man, which is basically just means human being. And he's going to be seated at the, hand of, or the right hand of the mighty one, and he'll be coming on the clouds. Jesus points toward a prophecy that talks about the toppling of empires. Empires that had propped up the system that was benefiting Caiaphas directly. Caiaphas hears this and he does what you're supposed to do and you're in the presence of um, blasphemy. He tears his robes. Now, there's all sorts of questions around why did he tear his robes? Was Jesus blasphemous? Was Jesus equating himself with God? There's no lack of writing about that, no lack of energy expended on trying to figure it out. Some say Caiaphas was right. Some say he was wrong. But whether or not he's right or wrong ultimately doesn't matter because the situation that they all find themselves in would not have allowed them to actually be the ones to kill Jesus. Rome was the ones who would do that. And one of the things that they knew is that there were a lot of people in Jesus' life, or in, uh, in the time that he lived, who had claimed to be a Messiah, which is to say they claimed to be a king. And all of them met the same fate because you didn't claim to be a king in the empire of Rome and get away with it. Instead, you were considered seditious and you were crucified. And so if they were motivated, if everyone in the room was motivated to find a reason to kill him, they had it. And they could simply bring him to the Roman authorities, which we know that they did, and accuse him of something that was a capital offense in the Roman culture. Now, I've read through this story in preparing for today a lot of times, and I found myself asking, why is this story here? I mean, the Gospel of Luke, Luke just says, like, Jesus met with the Sanhedrin and they brought him to the Temple of Authority. He doesn't even include it. Why is this story here? 
Is it to create some tension around the scene? Is he going to get away with it? Is he going to be set free? Is it just meant to demonize the, the Jewish elite and the Jewish authorities who were in that room that allowed it to happen? Is it to give us a first-hand perspective on what it felt like to be Jesus in that room being falsely accused and being grilled by a group of people? What's the point? Why have this here? And I think to understand why Matthew may have included it, we need to take a big step back and consider something about all of the Gospels, not just Matthew's Gospel. Because at the heart of the Gospels, At the heart of all four Gospels, there is a conversation around who is Jesus? I mean, if the Gospel writers really wanted us to know exactly what to believe about Jesus, they did a terrible job. There's no lists, there's no bullet points, there's no systematic theology, there are stories. And in the midst of the Gospels, those closest to Jesus are the ones who routinely misidentify him. The disciples are the ones who often seem to miss what he's doing or misunderstand what he's saying. It's as though the Gospel writers are writing a story and saying to us, here, take it, read it. Who do you think Jesus is? And when I read this story, what I realize is that's the question that's hanging in the air And it's ultimately the question asked directly of Jesus by Caiaphas, and Jesus just goes, am I? Or maybe we could say, that's one opinion. And I think the question, who is Jesus, is one that's worth asking, because I've grown up in and around the church, and I can tell you this, I've seen and met and heard about a lot of different Jesuses. Just a few weeks ago, I was out with some friends And there was one guy who showed up that I'd only met one other time. And the last time we hung out, he didn't ever hear about what I did for a living. Which, by the way, I don't lead with that. Like, if you walk in a room, I'm not like, I'm a pastor. Because people have different responses. So, we're all hanging out, and I'm sitting here. A friend of mine is here. Another friend of mine is here. And he's directly across the table from me. And they were like, hey, tell him, pointing at me, tell him what I told you on the way over here. I was like... He's like, oh, I heard you're a pastor. I was like, oh. And he's like, so, what I want to know is like, are you still in all that Jesus stuff? And he didn't say stuff, but because this is a children's program, we're going to go with that. (laughs) And I laughed and I said, you mean like, am I into, like, do I love Jesus? And he's like, yeah, that's what I mean. I said, I do. I've had a torrid love affair with Jesus for decades. And let me ask you a question. He said, yeah, I said, which Jesus are you talking about? And he's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I mean, there's like the rules Jesus. Like you have to obey all sorts of different rules. Then there's the justice Jesus. And I said, which is interesting because the rules Jesus that I grew up in around never really seemed to care about justice. And now there's like this justice Jesus that for some doesn't seem to care about any kind of rules or morality. So right there, you have two very different Jesuses. But then there's like the theology Jesus, the one who really wants to make sure you believe all the right things. And then, like, there's, of course, white Jesus, thanks to Western art. Can we, just, can we just name that as something that needs to change? 
Then there's bumper sticker Jesus, like you just have all these really cool statements and you're like, hmm, I'm gonna have to go home and think about that. But then you think about it and you realize there's really not much to think about. I'm like, then you have like the rabbi Jesus, then you have Christian Jesus, then you have Jewish Jesus, then you have like the Jesus whose name has been used to oppress, like you have a lot of Jesuses, so which Jesus are we talking about? And he was like, they told me not to say something like this to you. (laughs) But I wonder, like, who is Jesus? If someone walked up to you and said, who is Jesus? Who are you going to quote? The Belgian Catholic theologian Edward Skillebeck says, we're routinely asked the question, who is Jesus? And we find ourselves quoting the gospels or quoting theologians. It's our own answer we don't hear. Maybe this story is given to us so that we, we can actually be those where we find ourselves in the room, standing in front of Jesus, and asking him in our own way, just as Caiaphas did, hey, who are you? Let's pray together. God, um, we recognize that these stories given to us handed down generation after generation after generation are an invitation for us to be in conversation not only with your sacred text, but with you and with one another. May we not be those who race through things only so that we can get to a satisfactory place for ourselves, but may we be those who in the long tradition of those who've come before us are willing to wrestle and struggle and ask deeper questions of ourselves and of you in our world. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus And all my siblings said, amen. As we continue our time together this morning, uh, we're going to participate in Eucharist. I find it interesting when Jesus invited us to remember him, he didn't give us a long list of things to believe. He didn't give us his profile about who he is. He simply gave us an act, a meal, something to participate in. And this is why we do this every time we're gathered together. We remember his broken body. We remember his blood shed for us. And here at DCC, we invite everyone who is willing to come and to participate because this is the table of Jesus. And one thing we do know is that he always invited people to come if they were willing. All that's required is hunger and thirst. So with that said, let's read these words from the Gospel of Matthew. He says this, while they were eating and drinking, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as you come, we have four stations, two on the sides, two up front. We'd ask that if you're going to come to the two in the middle, that you'd use the middle aisle. If you're going to go to the ones on the sides, that you use the side aisles alongside the wall, and then return to your seats using the diagonal aisle. 
all the bread is gluten-free. In the tall glass, we have wine. In the short glass, we have juice. We'd ask that you would take a piece of bread and that you would dip it in one of the cups. Come as you are ready. Thank you.